Chapter Seventeen of the Mayor's Parlor by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Impregnable. Brent received this plain-spoken declaration with a curious tightening of lips and setting of jaw, which Tansley, during their brief acquaintance, had come to know well enough. They were accompanied by a fixed stare. The solicitor knew that too. These things meant that Brent's fighting spirit was roused and that his temper became ugly. Tansley laughed. "'You're the sort of chap for a scrap, Brent,' he continued, "'and a go-ahead customer, too. "'But you don't know this lot, nor their resources. "'Whatever anybody may say, "'and whatever men like your late cousin and Epplewhite "'and any of the so-called progressives, "'I'm not one myself. "'It pays me to belong to neither party. "'Whatever these folks may think or say, "'Simon Crood and his lot are top dogs in this little old town.' vested interest my boy ancient tree with roots firmly fixed in the piled-up soil strata upon strata of a thousand years you're not going to pull up these roots my lad how'll simon crood smash me demanded brent quietly as to the exact how answered tansley can't say mole work but he'll set the majority of the electors in that castle ward against you "'I've enough promises of support now to give me a majority,' retorted Brent. "'That for promises!' exclaimed Tansley, snapping his fingers. "'You don't know, Hathelsborough people. "'They'll promise you their support to your face "'just to get rid of your presence on their doorsteps "'and vote against you when they reach the ballot-box. "'I'll lay anything most of the folk you've been to see "'have promised their support to both candidates.' "'Why should these people support Crood and his crew?' demanded Brent. "'Because Crood and his crew represent the only god they worship,' said Tansley, with a cynical laugh. "'Brass, as they call it. All that a Hathelsborough man thinks about is brass. Money. Get money where you can, never mind how, as long as you can get it, and keep just within the law. Simon Crood represents the Hathelsborough principle of graft, and whatever you may think, he's the paramount influence in the town today. "'He and his lot have only got the barest majority on the council,' remarked Brent. "'Maybe, but they've got all the really influential men behind them, the moneyed men,' said Tansley, "'and they've distributed all the various official posts, sinecures most of them, among their friends. "'That town trustee business is the nut to crack here, Brent,' and a nut that's been hardening for centuries isn't going to be cracked with an ordinary implement. Come now, are you an extraordinary one? I'll make a try at things anyway, replied Brent, and I don't believe I shall lose that election either. You might have scraped in if you hadn't carried Simon Crood's niece away from under his very nose, said Tansley. But now that you've brought personal matters into the quarrel, the old chap will move every piece he has on the board to checkmate you. It won't do to have you on the council, Brent. You're too much of an innovator. Now, this town, the real town, doesn't want innovation. Innovation in an ancient borough like this is unsettling and uncomfortable, see? This world doesn't stand still, retorted Brent. I'm going ahead. But he reflected as he left the solicitor's office that much of what Tansley had said was true. There was something baffling in the very atmosphere of Hathelsborough. He felt like a man who fights the wind. 
Everything was elusive, ungraspable, evasive. He seemed to get no further forward. And, if Tansley was right in affirming that Hathelsborough people made promises which they had no intention of redeeming, his chances of getting a seat on the town council and setting to work to rebuild his late cousin's schemes of reformation were small indeed. But once more he set his jaw and nerved himself to endeavour, and, as the day of the election was now close at hand, plunged into the task of canvassing and persuading, wondering all the time, now that he had heard Tansley's cynical remarks, if the people to whom he talked, and who were mostly plausible and ingratiating in their reception of him, were in reality laughing at him for his pains. He saw little of the efforts of the other side, but Peppermore agreed with Tansley that the opposition would leave no stone unturned in the task of beating him. The monitor was all for Brent. Peppermore's proprietor was a progressive, a tradesman who had bought up the monitor for a mere song, and ran it as a business speculation which had so far turned out very satisfactorily. Consequently, Brent at this period went much to the monitor office, and did things in concert with Peppermore, inspiring articles which, to say the least of them, were severely critical of the methods of the crude regime. On one of these visits, Peppermore, in the middle of a discussion about one of these effusions, abruptly switched off the trend of his thought in another direction. "'I'd a visit from Mrs. Somberes this morning, Mr. Brent,' he said, eyeing his companion with a knowing look. "'Pretty and accomplished woman, that, sir. But queer, Mr. Brent, queer.' "'What do you mean?' asked Brent. "'Odd ideas, sir, very odd,' replied Peppermore. "'Wanted to find out from me, Mr. Brent, if in case she's called up again at this inquest business, or if circumstances arise which necessitate police proceedings at which she might be a witness, her name couldn't be suppressed? Ever hear such a proposal, sir, to make to a journalist? Impossible, my dear madam, says I. Publicity, ma'am, I says, is, well, it's the very sort of life, as you might term it, I says. When gentlemen of our profession report public affairs, we keep nothing back, I says, firmly, sir. I very much object to my name figuring in these proceedings, she says. I object very strongly indeed. Can't help it, ma'am, says I. If the highest in the land was called into a witness box and I reported the case, I says, I should have to give the name. It's the glory of our profession, Mrs. Somerez. I says, just as it's that of the law, that we don't countenance hole-and-corner business. The light of day, ma'am, the light of day, that's the idea, Mrs. Somerez, I says. Let the clear, unclouded radiance of high noon, ma'am, shine on. But you know what I mean, Mr. Brent. As I said to her, the publicity that's attendant on all this sort of thing in England is one of the very finest of our national institutions. Odd, sir, but for a woman that's supposed to be modern and progressive, she didn't agree. I don't want to see my name in the papers in connection with this affair, Mr. Peppermore, she declared again. I thought, perhaps, she says, rather coaxingly, that you could suggest some way of keeping it out if there are any further proceedings. Can't, ma'am, says I. If such an eventuality comes to be, it'll be my duty to record faithfully and fully in the monitor whatever takes place. Oh, says she, but it's not the monitor that I so much object to. It's the London papers. 
I understand that you supply the reports to them, Mr. Peppermore. Well, of course, as you know, Mr. Brent, I am district correspondent for two of the big London agencies, but I had to explain to her that in a sensational case like this, the London papers generally sent down men of their own. There were, for instance, two or three London reporters present the other day. Yes, she said, so she'd heard, and she'd got all the London papers to see if her name was mentioned, and had been relieved to find that it hadn't. There were nothing but summarized reports. Her name hadn't appeared anywhere but in the monitor. And what I wanted, Mr. Peppermore, she says, more wheedlingly than ever, was that if it lay in your power, and if occasion arises, you would do what you could to keep my name out of it. I don't want publicity. Um, concluded Peppermore. Pretty woman, Mr. Brent, and with taking ways. But of course I had to be adamant, sir. Firm, Mr. Brent, firm as St. Hathelwood's Tower. The press, Mrs. Saumarez, I says, as I dismissed the matter, politely, of course, has its duties. It can make no exception, Mrs. Saumarez, to wealth or rank or beauty. I made her a nice bow, Mr. Brent, as I spoke the last word. But she wasn't impressed. As I say, queer woman. What's publicity matter to her as long as she's no more than a witness? Brent was not particularly impressed by Peppermore's story. He saw nothing in it beyond the natural desire of a sensitive, highly strung woman to keep herself aloof from an unpleasant episode, and he said so. I don't see what good Hawthwaite hoped to get by ever calling Mrs. Saumarez before the coroner, he added. She told nothing that everybody didn't know. What did it all amount to? Aye, but that's just it. In a town like this, Mr. Brent, answered Peppermore with a wink, I can tell you why the police put the coroner up to calling Mrs. Saumarez as a witness. They'd got a theory that Wellesley killed your cousin in a fit of jealousy, of which she was the cause, and they hoped to substantiate it through her evidence. There's no doubt, sir, that there were love passages between Dr. Wellesley and this attractive lady, and between her and your cousin, but, shall I tell you, sir, something that's in my mind? Aye, why not, answered Brent. He was thinking of the thick pile of letters which he had returned to Mrs. Saumarez, and of the unmistakable love tokens which he had seen deposited with them in the casket wherein Wallingford had kept them. What is it you're thinking of? Peppermore edged his chair closer to his visitors, and lowered his voice. "'I am not unobservant, Mr. Brent,' he said. "'Our profession, as you know, sir, leads us to the cultivation of that faculty. Now, I've thought a good deal about this matter, and I'll tell you a conclusion I've come to. Do you remember that when Dr. Wellesley was being questioned the other day, he was asked if there was jealousy between him and Mr. Wallingford about Mrs. Saumarez? To be sure.' Now, what did he answer? He answered frankly that there had been, but it no longer existed. Do you know what I deduced from that, Mr. Brent? This, that the little lady had had both those men, as strings to her bow at the same time, indecisive as to which of them she'd finally choose. But that, not so long since, she'd given up both in favour of a third man. Ingenious, Peppermore, very ingenious, he said given them both the mitten, as they say. But the third man? Mrs. Saumarez was away on the continent most of the winter, answered Peppermore. The Riviera, Nice, Monte Carlo, that sort of thing. 
She may have met somebody there that she preferred to either Wellesley or Wallingford. Anyway, Mr. Brent, what did the doctor mean when he frankly admitted that there had been jealousy between him and Wallingford, but that it no longer existed? He meant, I take it, that there was no reason for its further existence. That implies that another man had come into the arena. Aye, but does it, said Brent. It might mean something else, that she'd finally accepted Wellesley, eh? No, declared Peppermore. She's not engaged to Wellesley. I'll lay anything she isn't, Mr. Brent. There's a third man somewhere in the background, and it's my opinion that that's the reason why she doesn't want the publicity she came to me about. Brent fell into a new train of thought, more or less confused. Mrs. Saumarez's talk to him about Wallingford and the letters, and the things in the casket were all mixed up in it. Had you any opportunity of seeing Wellesley and my cousin together during the last week or two before my cousin's death? he asked presently. Several, Mr. Brent, several opportunities, answered Peppermore. I went to report the proceedings of two or three committees of the town council during the fortnight preceding that lamentable occurrence, sir, and saw them at close quarters. I saw them frequently at the club of which I am a member. I should say, sir, from what I observed, that they were on very good terms with each other, more friendly than ever, Mr. Brent. Hm, said Brent. Well, there's a lot of queer stuff about this business, Peppermore, but let's get back to that of the moment. Look here, I've got a fine notion for your monitor. You'll just have time to get it out before my election day. Let's make a real, vigorous, uncompromising attack on the principle of the town trustee business. We'll not say one word about the present trustees, old Crude, Mallet, and Coppinger. We'll have no personalities and make up no charges. We'll avoid all stuff of that sort. We'll just attack the thing on its principle, taking up the line that it's a bad principle that the finances of a borough should be entrusted to the sole control of three men responsible to nobody, and with the power, if one dies, to elect his successor. Let's argue it out on the principle. Then later we'll have another article on the argument that the finances of a town should be wholly controlled by the elected representatives of the people. See? Your late cousin's theories, Mr. Brent, said Peppermore. Excellent notions both, sir. You write the articles, I'll find the space. All on principle, no personalities. Plain and practical, Mr. Brent, let them be, so that everybody can understand. Though to be sure, he added regretfully, what our readers most like is personalities. If we dared to slate old Crude with all the abuse we could lay our pens to, the readers of the Monitor, sir, would hug themselves with pleasure. But libel, Mr. Brent, libel. Do you know, sir, that ever since I occupied the editorial chair of State, I have always felt that the wet blanket of the law of libel sat at my banquet like the ghost in Macbeth, letting its sword hang by a thread an inch from my cranium. Bit mixed in my metaphor, sir, but you know what I mean. Mustn't involve my respected proprietor in a libel suit, Mr. Brent, so stick to abstract principles, sir, and eschew those saucy personal touches which, I regret, deeply, I can't print. Brent had no intention of indulging in personalities in his warfare with Simon Crude and the reactionaries, but as the day of the election approached, he discovered that his adversaries were not at all particular about putting forth 
highly personal references to himself. Hathelsborough suddenly became flooded with handbills and posters, each bearing a few pithy words in enormous type. These effusions were for the most part in the form of questions, addressed to the recipients. There was a cynical and sinister sneer in all of them. Who is Mr. Brent? Why support a stranger? Who wants a carpet-bagger? Vote for the homemade article. Hathelsborough men for Hathelsborough matters. Stand by the true and tried. These appeals to the free and enlightened burgesses, whose suffrages he solicited, met Brent on every side, and especially on the day of the election. He had gone in for nothing of this sort himself. His original election address, it seemed to him, contained everything that he had to say, and beyond posting it all over the town in great placards and distributing it in the form of handbills to the electors of the castle ward, he had issued nothing in the shape of literature. But he had stumped his desired constituency thoroughly, making speeches at every street corner and at every public meeting-place, and he had a personal conviction from his usual reception on these occasions that the people were with him. He was still sure of victory when, at noon on the polling day, he chanced to meet Tansley. "'Going strong, as far as I can make out,' he answered, in response to the solicitor's inquiry. "'I've been about all the morning, and for what I've seen and what my committee tell me, I'm in.' Tansley shook his head. "'Look here, my lad,' he said, drawing Brett aside, as they stood together in the marketplace. "'Don't you build too high.' They're working against you today, the crude gang, as they never worked in their lives. They're bringing every influence they can get hold of against you. And you haven't been over-wise. What have I done now? demanded Brent. Those articles that are appearing in the Monitor, replied Tansley. Everybody knows they're yours. Do you think there's a soul in Hathelsborough who believes that Peppermore could write them? Now, they're a mistake. They may be true. They are true, growled Brent. Granted, but however true they are, they're an attack on Hathelsborough, said Tansley. Now, of whatever political colour they are, Hathelsborough folk are Hathelsborough folk, and they're prouder of this old town than you know. Look round you, my lad. There isn't a stone that you can see that wasn't just where it is now, hundreds of years before you were born. Do you think these people like to hear you, a stranger, criticizing their old customs, old privileges, as you are doing in those articles? Not a bit of it. They're asking who you are to come judging them. You'd have done a lot better, Brent, if you'd been a bit diplomatic. You should have left all politics and reforms out of it, and tried to win the seat simply on your relationship to Wallingford. You could have shown your cards when you got in. You've shown them too soon." "'That be damned,' said Brent. "'I've played the game straightforwardly, anyhow. "'I don't want any underhand business. "'There's enough of that in this rotten place now, "'and I still think I shall be in.' But before the summer evening had progressed far, Brent learned that the vested interests of an ancient English borough are stronger than he thought. He was hopelessly defeated. Only rather more than a hundred voters marked their papers for him. His opponent was returned by a big majority. He got a new idea when he heard the result, and went straight off to Peppermore and the Monitor with it. 
they would go on with the articles and make them of such a nature that the local government board in london would find it absolutely necessary to give prompt and searching attention to hathelsborough and its affairs end of chapter seventeen